This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Pyramid of Amira by James Patrick Kelly. Jim reads his own story, and then we discuss it with him afterwards. The Pyramid of Amira. Sometimes Amira thinks she can sense the weight of the pyramid that entombs her house. The huge limestone blocks seem to crush the air and squeeze light. When she carries the table light onto the porch and holds it up to the blank stone, shadows ooze across the roughed cut in her face. If she's in the right mood, they make cars and squirrels and flowers and Mom's face. Time passes. Amira will never see the outside of her pyramid, but she likes to imagine different looks for it. It's like trying on new jeans. They said that the limestone would be cased in some kind of marble they called Rosa Portogallo. She hopes it will be like Betty's pyramid, red as sunset, glossy as her fingernails. Are they setting it yet? Amira thinks not. She can still hear the dull, distant chalk as the believers lower each structural stone into place, twenty a day. Dust wisps from the cracks between the stones and settles through the thick air onto every horizontal surface of her house, the floor, Dad's desk, window sills, and the tops of the kitchen cabinets. Amira doesn't mind. She goes over the entire house periodically with vacuum and rag. She wants to be ready when the meaning comes. Time passes. The only thing she really misses is the sun. Well, that isn't true. She misses her mom and her dad and her friends on the swim team, especially Janet. She and Janet offered themselves to the meaning at Blessed Finger Sanctuary on Janet's twelfth birthday. Neither of them expected to be chosen Pyramid Girl. They thought maybe they would be throwing flowers off a float in the Monkey Day Parade or collecting door-to-door for the lost brothers. Janet shrieked with joy and hugged her when Mrs. Monroe told them the news. If her friend hadn't held her up, Amira might have collapsed. Amira keeps all the lights on, even when she goes to bed. She knows this is a waste of electricity, but it's easier to be brave when the house is bright. Besides, there is nobody to scold her now. Is there? Amira says, and then she walks into the kitchen to listen. Sometimes the house makes whispery noises when she talks to it. Is there anyone here who cares what I do? Her voice sounds like the hinges of the basement door. Time passes. They took all the clocks, and she has lost track of day and night. She sleeps when she is tired and eats when she is hungry. That's all there is to do, except wait for the meaning to come. Mom and Dad's bedroom is filled to the ceiling with cartons of goody-goody bars, nut raisin, cherry date, chocolate banana, and cinnamon apple, which is not her favorite. 
Mrs. Monroe said there were enough to last her for years. At first, that was a comfort. Now, Amira tries not to think about it. Time passes. Amira's pyramid is the first in the Tri-City area. They said it would be 20 meters tall. She had worked it out afterwards that 20 meters was almost 70 feet. Mom had said that if the meaning had first come to Memphis, Tennessee, instead of Memphis, Egypt, then maybe everything would have been in American instead of metric. Dad had laughed at that and said then Elvis would have been the first brother. Mom didn't like him making fun of the meaning. If she wanted to laugh, she would have him tell one of the holy jokes. What's the first law of religion? Amira says in her best imitation of Dad's voice. For every religion there exists an equal and opposite religion, she says in Mom's voice. What's the second law of religion? says Dad's voice. They're both wrong. <laughs> Mom always laughs at that. The silence goes all breathy, like Amira is holding seashells up to both ears. I don't get it, she says. She can't hear building sounds anymore. The dust has stopped falling. Time passes. When Amira was seven, her parents took her to Boston to visit Betty's Pyramid. The bus driver said that the believers had torn down 150 houses to make room for it. Amira could feel Betty long before she could see her pyramid. Mom said the meaning was very strong in Boston. Amira didn't understand much about the meaning back then. While the bus was stopped at a light, she had a vision of her heart swelling up inside her like a balloon and lifting her out of the window and into the bluest part of the sky where she could see everything there was to see. The whole bus was feeling Betty by then. Dad told the holy joke about the chicken and the Bible in a loud voice, and soon everyone was laughing so hard that the bus driver had to pull over. She and Mom and Dad walked the last three blocks, and the way Amira remembered it, her feet only touched the ground a couple of times. The pyramid was huge, in a way no skyscraper could ever be. She heard Dad tell Mom it was more like geography than architecture. Amira was going to ask him what that meant, only she realized that she knew because Betty knew. The marble of Betty's pyramid was incredibly smooth, but it was cold to the touch. Amira spread the fingers of both hands against it and thought very hard about Betty. Are you there, Betty? Amira sits up in bed. What's it like? All the lights are on in the house. Betty! Amira can't sleep because her stomach hurts. She gets up and goes to the bathroom to pee. When she wipes herself, there is a pinkish stain on the toilet paper. Time passes. Amira also misses juicy fruit gum and onion taste tots and 3DV and music. She hasn't seen her shows since Dad shut the door behind him and led Mom down the front walk. Neither of them looked back, but she thought Mom might have been crying. Did Mom have doubts? This still bothers Amira. She wonders what Janet is listening to these days on her earstone. Have the Stiffies released any new songs? When Amira sings, she practically has to scream, 
or else the pyramid swallows her voice. Go, go away, go, go away from me. Had fun, we're done. Why, oh, why can't you see? Whenever she finishes a goody-goody bar, she throws the wrapper out the front door. The walk has long since been covered. In the darkness, the wrappers look like fallen leaves. Time passes. Both Janet and Amira had been trying to get Han Bolitnikoff to notice them before Amira became Pyramid Girl. Han had wiry red hair and freckles and played midfield on the soccer team. He was the first boy in their school to wear his pants inside out. On her last day in school, there had been an assembly in her honor, and Han had come to the stage and told a holy joke about her. Amira cups her hands to make her voice sound like it's coming out of a microphone. What did Amira say to the guy at the hot dog stand? She twists her head to one side to give the audience response. I don't know. What? Han speaks into the microphone again. Make me one with everything. She can see him now, even though she is sitting at the kitchen table with a glass of water and an unopened cherry date goody-goody bar in front of him. His cheeks are flushed as she strides across the stage to him. He isn't expecting her to do this. The believers go quiet as if someone has thrown a blanket over them. She holds out her hand to shake his, and he stares at it. When their eyes finally meet, she can see his awe. She's turned into President Wong, or maybe Billy Tiger, the forward for the Boston Flash. His hand is warm, a little sweaty. Her fingertips brush the hollow of his palm. Thank you, says Amira. Han doesn't say anything. He isn't there. Amira unwraps the goody-goody bar. Time passes. Amira never gets used to having her period. She thinks she isn't doing it right. Mom never told her how it worked, and she didn't leave pads or tampons or anything. Amira wads toilet paper into her panties, which makes her feel like she's walking around with a sofa cushion between her legs. The menstrual blood smells like vinegar. She takes lots of baths. Sometimes she touches herself as the water cools, and then she feels better. For a while. Time passes. Amira wants to imagine herself kissing Han Bolitnikov, but she can't. She keeps seeing Janet's lips on his, her tongue darting into his mouth. At least that's how Janet said people kiss. She wonders if she would have better luck if she weren't in the kitchen. She climbs the stairs to her bedroom and opens the door. It's dark. The light has burned out. She pulls down the diffuser and unscrews the bulb. It's clear and about the size of a walnut. It says, Sylvania, 5,000 lumens, lifetime. Whose lifetime? She says. The pile of goody-goody wrappers on the front walk is taller than Dad. Amira tries to think where there might be extra light bulbs. She pulls the entire house apart looking for them. But she doesn't cry. Time passes. Amira is practicing living in the dark 
Well, it isn't entirely dark. She has left a light on in the hallway, but she is in the living room, staring out the picture window at nothing. The fireplace is gray on black. The couch across the room swells in the darkness, soaking up gloom like a sponge. There are eight light bulbs left. She carries one in Mom's old purse, protected by an enormous wad of toilet paper. The weight of the strap on her shoulder is as reassuring as a hug. Amira misses hugs. She never puts the purse down. Amira notices that it is particularly dark at the corner where the walls and the ceiling meet. She gets out of Dad's reading chair, arms stretched before her. She is going to try to shut the door to the hallway. She doesn't know if she can. She has never done it before. Where was Moses when the lights went out, she says. No one answers, not even in her imagination. She fumbles for the doorknob. Where was Mohammed when the lights went out? Her voice is shrinking. As she eases the door shut, the hinges complain. Where was Amira? when the lights went out. The latch bolt snicks home, but Amira keeps pressing hard against the knob, then leans into the door with her shoulder. The darkness squeezes her. She can't breathe. A moan pops out of her mouth like a seed, and she pivots suddenly, pressing her back against the door. Something flickers next to the couch. Low on the wall, a spark blue as her dreams. It turns sapphire, cerulean, azure, indigo, all the colors that only poets and painters can see. The blue darts out of the electrical outlet like a tongue. She holds out her hands to navigate across the room to it and notices an answering glow, pale as mother's milk, at her fingertips. Blue tongues are licking out of every plug in the living room, and Amira doesn't need to grope anymore. She can see everything. The couch, the fireplace, all the rooms of the house, and through the pyramid walls into the city. It's one city now, not three. Amira raises her arms above her head because her hands are blindingly bright, and she can see Dad with his new wife watching the Red Sox on 3DV. Someone has planted pink miniature roses on Mom's grave. Janet is looking into little Freddie Cobb's left ear with her otoscope, and Han is having late lunch at Sandine's with a married Imagineer named Shauna Russo, and Mrs. Monroe has dropped a stitch on the cap she is knitting for her great-grandson Matthias. At that moment, everyone who Myra sees, thousands of believers, tens of thousands... Stop what they are doing and turn to the pyramid. Amira's pyramid, which has been finished for these 17 years but has never meant anything to anyone until now. Some smile with recognition. A few clap. Others, most of them, Amira realizes, are now walking toward her pyramid to be close to her and caress the cold marble and know what she knows. The meaning is suddenly very strong in the city, like the perfume of lilacs, or the suck of an infant at the breast, or the whir of a hummingbird. Amira. Betty opens the living room door. She is a beautiful young girl with gray hair and crow's feet around her sky blue eyes. Are you there, Amira? 
Yes, says Amira. Do you understand? Yes, Amira says. <laughs> when she laughs, time stands still. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. And I'm James Patrick Kelly, but call me Jim. Hello, Hi, Jim. Jim. Thanks. We're going to talk about stories today. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah thanks for coming on. Actually, we're going to talk about the one we've just heard, which is uh, the Pyramid of Amira. I think I heard that on your podcast back in 2005, approximately 2006. Right. And I've, I've been reading it annually, uh, maybe five or six times a year with my students. And uh, every once in a while, I'll just read it for myself as well. I, I find it very deep. Gives me thinking deep thoughts, and it's very short. It's like 16, 17 minutes. Right. It's about 2,000 words. It was a story that um, – it was a real gift story. They don't come very often, at least not in my career. But um, I was uh, I, I was watching a, a, a show on PBS about Mayan temples, and in passing they said that at the uh, site, the Copan site – there was a temple that they built on top of another existing temple to sort of enclose it. And for some reason, that struck me as a really interesting idea. So I, I, I raced out of the room and wrote a note to myself um, that the Mayans do this, did this. And because it occurred to me that the, in the show that they were saying that probably somebody was in the house when they or was in the other temple when they built the first one, the second one on the first one. Yeah. So um, I, I started you know, I spent a, a night and that story started to write itself, I think, in my dreams or that night, because the next morning I was actually working on another story. Um, but before I did got to work on, it, I started just notes on this story. And then all of a sudden the notes were longer. And then all of a sudden this story wrote itself, even though it's short, in four or five days. And, uh, and it was all there. Uh, although I have to say that um, there were technical things that I didn't understand when I started that I only understood at the end. Um, so, for instance, how to how to mark time passing. I wasn't mm. really sure how I was going to do that since I wrote time passes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the time passes, but 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 you know that doesn't really tell the reader how much time is passing. And so, um, so then I hit upon the idea of the the wrappers and. And and then I I realized that she would you know if it is enough time had passed she would you know have she would she would you know start to menstruate and then mm-hmm. and then I started thinking well that's that's still how do I get out of this story yeah. <laughs> how does this story end I mean one of the things about the story is is that I've said this before about it is that it's you know two thousand words of of nothing happening and two hundred words where everything changes. And and I wasn't really sure how the the last two hundred words were going to work out. I, I kept writing, writing, and writing, and she's she's getting older. Well, what's going to happen? And um, it wasn't until I figured out that the that the light bulbs were going to burn out as another time marker that I realized that then things would change because she would be in the dark. And oh my God, what's going to happen then? And she couldn't go on and exist in the dark. So I had to figure out an ending, and then the mystical ending that you, you, you just heard. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a baffle. It's, you know, that's what I like about stories like this is, is leaves me asking a lot of questions and not questions about why did the plot go so wrong, but questions like what, 
what's going on here and what's right. what 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 strings are being pulled that we cannot see that mm-hmm. cause people to act in such strange strange ways and yet seem so reasonable right um so yeah. what, what the first one i ask is is this a science fiction story is it a fantasy story i think you've classified <laughs> it as a fantasy story <laughs> right well yes okay it- if you if you accept the uh, uh, the opinion of David Hartwell and Catherine Kramer, you know the secret masters of science fiction, they bought it for the year's best fantasy. So it must be a fantasy story. Um, but it definitely has a sort of extrapolative uh, aspect to it. It takes place sometime in the in some future that mm-hmm. is somehow linked to ours because they're still watching the Red Sox, although it's on mm-hmm. 3D TV, uh, which in 2002 when the story was. What, written was was science fiction you know. i expect to be buying my ear stone anytime from uh Apple. yeah yeah right well there you go your ear stone is like the you know the ipod nano you know yeah. written even smaller and so i, I stone <laughs> i stone there you go <laughs> wait a minute i gotta go copyright that That's right. <laughs> but yeah so so it's hmm um so it, it's just it's a it, I have written an. I'm not. Um, I'm. I'm blurbling here. Okay, let me start from the beginning. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic schools K through college. I am not a Catholic anymore. I'm an unchurched person. Uh, but I've returned again and again to the problem of religion and the problem of belief. And so uh, when I started out to write this story, it actually is. So is it science fiction? Is it fantasy? You know, actually, it's a horror story. It um, is a horror story, definitely. <laughs> It's a horror story in that that they're sacrificing this girl, and and not only that are they sacrificing, but she goes along with sacri- with the sacrifice. She volunteers in the same way that presumably some folks in the Mesoamerican Inca Mayan you know Aztec culture, there were a lot of unwilling people, but I think people probably some people probably volunteered to be sacrificed for the mm-hmm. greater good, and so. Mm-hmm. She volunteers to be sacrificed for the greater good. And as we, the rational um, audience, and certainly the rational writer who is unchurched, Jim Kelly, proceed through the story, we just say, this is so stupid. This is so wrong. Why did they do this? Until the end. Mm-hmm. And the end, I think, um, although <laughs> the, the end justifies her belief, I think. Although, although uh, when I workshop this story... Um, Somebody said to me, uh, and I wasn't thinking of this, but it's probably true, is that that prolonged um, isolation would definitely lead to hallucinations. She'd have hallucinations all the time. And so there's a way, I suppose you could imagine, that she is sitting there. She hasn't actually, there is no objective uh, Betty appearing to her. She can't objectively look through the pyramid and see everyone out there. It could all be a hallucination. But you know what? I... uh, I've renounced that reading. <laughs> I don't like that reading. You can have wrong. that reading, but it ain't my reading. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I see that as a as a as a possibility, and I wouldn't say you know it's completely completely. Un, it's not in the story because she she sort of has hallucinations even before she gets on the. or well, she has callbacks to hallucinations she sort of has before she gets on in, under the. I guess I guess really she. They just build it around her house, yeah, <laughs> rather right, exactly. than uh, yeah. She doesn't yeah. have to actively do anything. One day they just wake up and they're building stone, you know, making right. paving stones around her house. Right. Um, yep. Yeah. There's a scene where she's she's uh, she's imagining, you know, she's she never really got a chance to connect with her 
would-be boyfriend, Han Bolitnikov, but there's a scene where she's actually talking to him as if he's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, clearly he's not there. But she recognizes that he's not there at the end. It's sort of like, if it's a hallucination, she's aware of her hallucinations. And 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 I'm not prepared to say that she's going to recognize that Betty wasn't really there at the end of the story. But 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 because I don't... Because that possibility exists, the story is, in, in many ways, as you say, a huge question. And, and I'm happy with that. I, I, I think that you can – a sh- story this short opens up many possibil- that opens up many possibilities deserves to be you know, not conclusive. And so you bring to the story what your own beliefs and outlook on life are and, and, and you read the story that you, know, you can read. But I think other people can read different stories here. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what I, I often bring to it is um, uh, the philosopher David Hume, Scottish philosopher, mm-hmm. uh, was not a big believer in um, uh, religion, mostly because he thought that it, religions relied on miracles for their faith mm-hmm. uh, of the of their followers. And yet he thinks that a miracle is a an unreasonable event. It's an event that defies the laws of physics. And as such, we can't believe in those things because they don't happen on a daily basis. So he doesn't say miracles are impossible. He says miracles are, by definition, one-off events, um, and so they can't exist. Uh, we can't believe in them because right. we have no sensory experience to make them. It's, he's got a big argument, and it's very you know, strong, I think. Uh, but what what's funny is I think you've taken – You've taken a miracle and made it a recipe because it worked for Betty. <laughs> Why not? Let's let's do it for Amira, right? right? And right. and and if we read into the backstory of the story, there's um, it it this has happened in it started in uh, Memphis, Memphis Egypt, Egypt, right? <laughs> Somehow, maybe somebody in the suburb of Memphis, Egypt, got entombed and and yeah, became, right. uh, gave us meaning. Whatever that right. is, what is meaning? Whatever that is, right? Exactly. Yeah, um, uh, I agree that there is uh, the argument is that um, the miracles happen because Amira actually d- does she experience a, a miracle when she goes to Betty's pyramid and puts her hand against it? Then she sort of sees what mm-hmm. Betty sees and knows what Betty knows. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the story would argue that that wasn't a hallucination. That really happened, and all those other people who were there were also. Uh, raised up and 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 uh, and enlightened by Betty, who was, you know, put entombed in that other pyramid. So, you know, um, if I, if you if you put me up against the wall, I would say this is a fantasy. But it's a a fantasy that um, that that asks questions about religion, and and so then the question to the reader is: Well, is religion a fantasy? And your, your your response to that is your response to the story. Well, I think in 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 this story, if if it is a recipe that works every time, you know, all you have to do is take a girl and entomb her in her own home with a bunch of goody goody bars and uh, um and some uh, a few light bulbs, and and seventeen years later she'll she'll turn into a, a god of some kind. I think that that's that's science. That's you know technique. Yeah. Um, right. So yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I I was thinking I was telling Tam uh, that I thought this story might be quote unquote slipstream because I don't know what that means, and I thought maybe the, because it doesn't fit, it fits into slipstream. What what, what is slipstream? 
<laughs> hey, <laughs> I wrote a whole. Uh, I know. <laughs> I collected. I was the editor of an anthology which attends, attempts to explain what Slipstream is, and 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 I still don't know. Um, uh, but the your point is well taken. This is clearly a story that that wants to be Slipstream. Um, uh, Kelly Link is a, is a is a is a goddess, and uh, <laughs> she and I. Uh, she and I, I've known her for a long time. I, I met her the the day she graduated from Clarion, um, and I had come back to Clarion to do a, a gig there, and um, I invited her to be in our me and my the fellow workshoppers in in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Invited her to be in our workshop, and she was in our workshop for a long time. And I've workshopped with her in other workshops as well. And I've you know uh, her work is so um, magical and and interesting and and hard to define that eventually i having you know tried to unpack it in a workshop i tried to do some myself and so this is clearly to in my mind this is a kelly link story um you know it, it, I, it jim kelly cannot write a kelly link story but you know insofar as he can you know um pattern some of uh kelly link's tropes this is this is her story and matter of fact when I workshopped this story in my, in my own workshop, she was no longer in the workshop at that point, I think. Um, some people picked it up immediately and said, oh my God, this is a Kelly Link story. You should show it, show it to Kelly Link. What is Slipstream? Slipstream is, I came up with this definition uh, in the uh, anthology that John Kessel and I edited called uh, uh, Feeling Very Strange, that it's a kind of cognitive dissonance. Uh, it, it, no, normally when, when somebody tells you, uh, something that is, uh, that doesn't fit into your worldview, you either accept the thing that they tell you, or you discard it because it doesn't fit into your worldview. So sometimes you might, somebody, somebody might tell you something that, and, and you, you'll try to fit it into your worldview. Uh, but the, that, that un, unsettling feeling that you have when someone tells you something that you totally takes you by surprise is cognitive this cognitive dissonance these two ideas can't exist so i try to resolve them either by discarding one or making it fit into my worldview well my idea was that that um slipstream uh encourages cognitive dissonance as a matter of fact we live in a in an age of cognitive dissonance because um um many inputs are coming at us from every direction the internet the cultural uh diversity that we have uh the the scientific discoveries that we're that are happening all the time and for every so, religion there is an equal and opposite religion right <laughs> yes for every the religion, holy joke there is an equal and opposite religion that's one of my holy jokes and so anyway that's a that's a cognitive dissonance uh that's that's an idea that that directly addresses this idea of cognitive dissonance and i have to say that when i wrote this story it was before i did the feeling very strange anthology so i hadn't actually had this insight insofar as it is as it is an insight but you know coming up with an introduction to the slipstream anthology and looking at my own you know process of writing a slipstream story it came to me that that certainly um feeling uh, that certainly the pyramid of amira is a uh, is an exercise in cognitive dissonance you say no this couldn't possibly be this couldn't possibly happen this these these people are so wrong they're so inhuman they the girl is so 
you know, Deluded, brainwashed, yeah. and all of a sudden, bang! Oh, wait, wait a minute. How can these both things exist? But the other stuff of of it is is that um, there's lots of stuff about the magic, or the the brothers, and the magic finger, and blah mm-hmm. blah, the holy jokes that are that 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 coexist with a world that seems like it's our world, and that's another thing uh, about um, about slipstream is that it it sometimes not always but sometimes it makes the familiar strange and the strange familiar and so that sort of interchange here is going on in the backstory the the outside world um it's our world but it isn't our world there's a new religion but the red Sox are playing mm-hmm. they're knit, you know somebody's knitting and 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 yet there's there's a, a you know there's a new world order happening out there and so um yeah so blather 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 but the problem is talking about slipstream is it it resists definition um and <laughs> i should go back and say that that um one of the things that the cognitive dissonance idea is about is that it's not the definition of what slipstream does is it's what slipstream does it's it's kind of writing that makes you have those weird feelings of holding two ideas that are in opposition in your head at the same time. Yeah. In the same way that horror is this kind of writing that makes you scared or that comedy is a kind of writing that makes you laugh. Well, yeah, you can have a comedy set in outer space. You can have a comedy that's a mystery. You can have a comedy that's a romance. You can have a comedy that's satire. You can have a comedy that's, you know, slapstick. Well, Slipstream also is a literature of effect in, in my definition and our definition and, and like not necessarily yeah. an, a, 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 a a literature that you can define like, oh, yeah, a mystery has to have, you know, a murder and blah, 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 and, and, and a puzzle. And anyway. Yeah, I, I think I, I want to hear more of those definitions. So what, what is a f- fantasy story? A fantasy story makes you feel. Well, no, I think that, yeah, okay, fantasy story is there's a discontinuity with um, with the real world, um, but it is explicable in its in in its own uh, universe. And so I think in a slipstream story, the, so so yeah, okay, Lord of the Rings, yeah, it's totally different. Magic works and all this, you know, they go on quests. There's many races, and some are tall and some are short, but but insofar that it that you you enter that world is internally consistent. Well, slipstream isn't internally consistent all the time. Yeah, um, and 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 similarly, science fiction is is a genre where uh, again the world has changed, but it also has changed theoretically uh, in the purest sense of science fiction that you know it could possibly happen. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, in a way, it's kind of. I mean, this story could fit. I, I was surprised when you said it was in a fantasy category because I was thinking it was more like in the line with. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Nine Billion Names of God, you know, where <laughs> you just do the recipe and then the world ends. Um, and there's oh, no wait a minute. to what stop is, it. Are you telling me that Arthur C. Clarke wrote a fantasy? Come on! <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's the thing. is It's not a fantasy, right? It's a it's yeah. Arthur C. Clarke. He can't write fantasy. <laughs> He's Arthur got, C. Clarke. I got that is very good. I'm going to have to tuck that into my portfolio of insights about this story. That's right. It's very true. I mean, they only do it once in that story, but yeah, I know. <laughs> but um, but but they expect it to happen. They do. That they're 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 religiously sure about it. <laughs> right. It's um, it's a it's a trippy story. Uh, Tam, what what was uh, your reaction upon first reading? 
Well, actually, uh, I was going to mention the week before this, we read a H.P. Lovecraft story called The Crawling Chaos, which is mm-hmm. based on an opium dream. And I was like, oh, I guess we're doing the same type of thing this week. <laughs> well, it's it's, I, it's I similarly I, trippy in a sense. Right. Like, I didn't quite get a grasp on it the first time, and then I got more of a grasp on it the second time, but... Yeah, it's... I like that there are stories you can, you have to reread, not because they're hard to understand, you know, line by line, but they're hard to understand as a whole. Mm. Yeah, and I, I I would agree. This is not an easy story to understand. The writer doesn't understand it. The writer, <laughs> the, the writer has a different take. You know, I've, I this is one of my favorite stories to read, and I've read this story many many times, and every time I read it. Sometimes I I read it. And I'm very jaunty. Oh, Amira is having a good time, and, you know, <laughs> and 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 then it gets sort of sadder and sadder and sadder. And then it's sometimes it starts sad and and it gets happier. And um, uh, so the the effect it has on me changes. But also I'm I'm not really sure um, whether this is a happy ending, for instance, or not. I mean, she's still all alone. Yeah, she's. You know, is the Dalai Lama happy? Yeah, he probably is. But did he have get married and have children? Well, no. And no. Yeah, right. And she so didn't get, she didn't forget, get to marry Hans Politnikov. No, and she didn't get to be on the swim team anymore, and she never saw the sun again. You know, and yeah, anyway, so uh, well, yeah, yeah. It, 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 I mean, I imagine that like those people in the pyramids can only communicate with each other uh, directly, like. Betty can go visit right. Amira, and Amira can go visit that guy in in or Memphis, guy, yeah, in Memphis, and they cannot, you know, sort of, you know, they they keep in their god tombs, you know, and yeah, right. It's uh, it's it's just a weird, it's just a weird feeling that you get, and I, and that's yeah. So I guess may, maybe I need to read more Slipstream. I I I have read Kelly Link, and I I came away baffled from her stuff, and I. I was like, this is supposed to be a detective story? What's going on? <laughs> Slipstream detective? <laughs> yeah. Slipstream detective, yeah. Girl detective, yeah. Right. Yeah, the girl detective. And I was like, what is going on in this story? It's just baffling. Mm-hmm. Well, good. I mean, this is, this is, uh, um, I don't know what, I don't, I don't want to say it's an acquired taste, but the first time I read Kelly, or, you know, Kelly is in, the latest in the line of wonderfully uh, powerful storytellers like uh, Karen Joy Fowler or Carol Emschwiller. You know, Carol Emschwiller is the mother of us all who, who writing Slipstream, it occurs to me. And, of course, she would bow down and has to Kafka, you know. Mm. Yeah, uh, I didn't even think about that. That actually and, makes sense. And so, uh, you know, the, the, this is not something that Slipstream is is – if you put a label on some of the things that are happening now, so Slipstream sort of fits, so lots of people chafe under that title. But it's not like it just popped into existence in nineteen, you know, ninety three. It's it's been people have been writing these kinds of stories for a long time, and they're baffling, and they're they're absurd, and they're surreal, and they're very cool, and uh, um, and and they defeat reader expectations in a very useful way. It seems to me. Uh, anytime you sit down and you know what you're going to get, uh, well, that's a, that could be fun, but it it I think some in some ways readers are happier when they are really, really, really surprised. And sometimes that surprise may seem to make them unhappy until they think about it. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, Tam may may say, "Oh, I, I wrote this. I read this story first. I didn't get it, or, or I didn't get it all, and then I read it again." And and, um, and and so that kind of payment of of intense uh, involvement with a story is something that I think that writers, some writers yearn for, and some readers also are, are very happy to have. Um, but but of course, the other part of that is is that how many people read a story twice? Not very often. Not <laughs> very often, no. Story. And so they'll just sort of shrug and say, well, that was nice, I didn't get it. But uh, and, and so um, when we workshop stories like, you know, Karen Fowler or Karen Joy Fowler or Kelly or, or Carol, you know, one of the things is, oh, okay, well, I guess I got to read this story a couple times to get it. And and then you say, well, here's what I got out of it. And if you're if you're a good critic or a careful reader, you usually get most of it. But that's a lot of work to expect a reader to do. And some readers don't do that kind of work. Some readers don't want to do that kind of work. And so it's a specialized part of the of the house of it's it's a it's a porch. Maybe it's a <laughs> it's a balcony on the house of fiction. And, and so uh, but it's it's a place that not every reader and writer wants to go. Well, I also I think the name is kind of cool. It makes it makes you think. So, it, it's it's drafting. It's behind something, right? And it's it's following in the. He- I, I think it is following in the heels of you know we, we've got this ex- push of science taking us in in a direction of understanding, and yet we've got all this this uh, turbulence of religion and uh, sort of. Um, Things that we we assume to be true, but no, really aren't. Um, and 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 then it's that mix that it, it, it fits. Where where did the title, uh, the definition come from? Did you coin this term? Slips no, no. But I, I, by the way, that was very uh, poetic, critical <laughs> diction there, dude. I really like that. Thank you. Um, uh, it, it was uh, uh, my pal um, um, Bruce Sterling. Uh, Coined the word um, to talk about mainstream writers mostly, uh, and 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 people who were sort of uh, dealing with the fantastic, but were more literary mainstream. And so he talked about this being slipstream, um, and then it came to be applied to um, writers like you know Kelly and Carol and and you know <laughs> and Ted. You know we put Ted in the in the uh, slipstream anthology. Yeah, I saw that. And Ted was like, "Why did you do that?" <laughs> what? Because we think you're we think you're slipstream, Ted. And Ted, Ted, I think would you know probably resist and has resisted you know calling some of his stuff that. So I mean, it's it's a it's a term of critical uh, it's a it's a critical a term of critique, but it isn't necessarily you know necessarily obtained for every story it doesn't lock every story down it no. sort of is a way of approaching a story and then yeah this has slipstreamy parts to it and and but but it's really supposed to be a fantasy or anyway yeah i i i think in rereading oftentimes what we are doing is comforting ourselves right we go back to the material that we enjoyed and yeah. and that's why you know i know people who reread uh, tolkien every year and mm. I, I I love Tolkien, but I haven't read Tolkien for years and years. I, I think if I'm going to read it again, it, I have to have enough distance so that I can appreciate it. But I think um, sometimes you can just reread a, a, a short story because it's like a, a Rorschach. You know, it, it right. really tells you 
what's going on. You know, it's what you bring to it. So when I read good stories, I I think of all the things that I've learned recently that, oh, yeah, I see what's going on here. And maybe it's not happening in the story, but because it <laughs> it, it happens in my head, it is happening in the story in a way, you know? Yeah. It's it's funny you should say that because I have I'm a big rereader, but I don't reread in in on paper. I I have slowly been working my way through Heinlein again, mm-hmm. uh, um, but all on audio. I really love. I, I I'm sure you know about Bruce Koval's. Uh, oh yeah, full, full cast. cast stuff. I think that stuff is great. And I'm, I mean, you know, so I, I've been thinking of writing. I am writing a juvenile novel, and so oh, I've cool. been listening to that and trying to figure out okay this is the juvenile novels that these are the juvenile novels i read when i was a juvenile so what did about this you know obviously made a big impact on me because here i am you know some many years later decades later you know still writing this stuff and thinking about writing a juvenile so um but but uh it, it's it's a comfort yeah i think that's right but it also for a writer is okay it's it's a for me anyway it's an examination of of my my roots and my the way going forward what what is it that made me who i am today and and how can i come to grips with that and and as we as as, i'm very much not always but very much interested in commenting on the dialogue that goes on in this field Uh, lots of these stories Mm -hmm. Right, are in dialogue with other stories. So I have a lot to say to Heinlein. <laughs> he I think a lot of people it, do. He isn't going to hear it, but you know, you know, there's a huge love-hate relationship with Heinlein. Um, uh, you know, the, the marvelous things, and then the things that you know, he the wool he pulled over the eyes of a 15-year-old kid, uh, m- namely me, now sort of makes me sort of angry with him but on the other hand yeah. boy did i have a good time having that <laughs> wool pulled over my eyes so. i i think my biggest beef with heinlein when i reread him is his villains are all straw men you know they're not oh, yeah. they're not anything like <laughs> they're not anything like a real villain should be in that yeah. you know you've got a a person who has a fundamental conviction that it doesn't fit into the worldview of the main character now the other guy's just a jerk and a stupid yeah. guy, right? <laughs> He's just a stupid jerk. Right. I agree. Um, but you know, I, I, I forgive him because he, he, he's just such a great idea, man. And, and the characters are, do speak lively. You know, they, they, uh, even, even in his, uh, well, maybe not his later career, but no, no, no. In his mid career, you know, the things that people don't consider juveniles really still are, uh, you know, like, uh, Starship Troopers is, is a juvenile. And in a way, um, so is Moon is the Harsh Mistress, even though the main character's, you know, quite a grizzled dude. He's got yeah. a missing arm and such. He's, he's, yep. He still, he still fits into that mode because we've got the old man, right? <laughs> the old yep. man who knows everything and, gives advice right. even though i wouldn't trust anything he says <laughs> if he yeah. was in a real really in my life but right yeah um and then there's the 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 girl who either is a mother figure or you know is your mother <laughs> i'm not sure yeah right but she's also sexy as hell absolutely there, there's that other thing that is going on and that thing for me or now we're going to get in trouble you'll be hearing from the heinlein fans uh <laughs> you know i think heinlein's ideas about sex are kind of creepy and so, um, and so, you know, they, they, they look, sometimes they look very liberated, but 
you know, the harder you scrutinize them, the less savory they seem to me. It's some of them anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think he, he, he just expressed too much of it, of his own personal, mm-hmm. and I didn't care for it. <laughs> yeah. It's probably fine for him, but. Yep. Right. Uh, yeah. I, every once in a while, you, you you read a line and you say, "Oh my God, did you actually allow this to be committed to paper and legacy?" Right. It's just unbelievable. But well, and and later on in his career, we should enough about Heinlein. Let's talk about me. But later on in his <laughs> career, uh, uh, I think that he needed editing. It would have been a kindness to uh, someone. Yes, absolutely, uh, Bob. No. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> but he was Heinlein at that point. He was selling copies like selling books like they were, you know, hotcakes. And yeah. so nobody think, was going to tell him no. Yeah, I think Starship Trooper, uh, not Starship Trooper, Stranger, Stranger in a Strange Land, I think is a very weak book. I, I don't mm-hmm. like it. And I don't like the expanded version uh, any more than, uh, than the shorter version. Yep. I, 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 maybe, uh, maybe that's kind of a slipstream story too. <laughs> if you think, oh, it's a slipstream novel too. Yeah. Um, but I just, uh, I, yeah, cause it, it, uh, yeah, maybe not. Um, okay. Well, uh, what we talked about stories and dialogue earlier. Um, uh, I wanted to say 10 to the 16th to one, but I don't, I don't think that's in dialogue with anything. I think, um, uh, I think like a dinosaur is definitely. Is yeah. that's in a, a grand tradition? Mm-hmm. Uh, was that responding directly to the original source of um, uh, uh, the cold equations? Yeah. Um, or did yeah, you? Yeah, I guess were so. Reading in dialogue with the other stories as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean, it, 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 there was a a guy who uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, Huntington, I want to say it, it was sort of like uh, deconstructing science fiction stories, and um, um, there was a big brouhaha that raged in the pages of the New York Review of Science Fiction about, you know, this whole cold equation thing. What's this really about? Well, uh, this guy who wrote this essay was saying, well, it's really about punishing women for going into space <laughs> and, and joining, trying to break into the boys club, you know, because there was lots of stuff that they could have done in the cold equations, which is, I don't know, if everyone doesn't know the story, we should do it very briefly. So uh, uh, this young girl stows away on a spaceship that's bringing medicine to a dying, to a plague planet. And and they've just got enough fuel to get to the plague planet, except that she stows away. And so her weight then means that the ship won't get to the plague planet in time with the medicine. As a matter of fact, it probably won't get there at all. And so the pilot uh, says, oh, my God, what are you doing here? And she says, oh, I'm just going to visit my brother. He's on the plague, 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 plague planet. Oh, my God, don't you, do you realize what you've done? And so blah, blah, blah. There's this uh, talking back and forth. And then finally, uh, you know, NASA Mission Control says, the only way we can you can make the trip is if one of you leaves. But she can't pilot the ship, so it has to be her. And so she walks out the airlock, and and and, and that's the and sad that's the story. Yeah, that that this, the truth is that physics, the laws of the universe are immutable and, you know, physics is tough. And so the cold equations say she had to die. And so she realizes she has to die and she dies. Um, and so uh, but there's many people pointed out, that, well, why didn't they like uh, throw some water out the airlock? I and mean, why didn't they pull the chairs out? How much stuff was an arm there? off? Right. Yeah. You know? There's stuff they could have thrown out. They could have gone on half rations. You know what? Whatever. Um, but it's mostly about, you know. And so, so they, some people actually went through the, you know, story and said, okay, they described this. This is how much this must weigh. They described this. This is how much this must weigh. <laughs> and so, uh, 
And so there was a big controversy about that. Then some other hard science folks whose name I will not mention rose to the defense of Tom Godwin. Oh, no, it's not about that at all. You're just reading you know, your own prejudice into it. And so, so anyway, I wanted to write a story where uh, 10 of the six, I mean, uh, Think Like a Dinosaur, I wanted to write a story. It was going to be a short story, probably not a whole lot longer than Pyramid of Myra, mm-hmm. where somebody didn't walk out the door, the airlock on their own, and the, the guy had to throw her out the airlock. And, um, but as I started to write that story, more and more cool stuff started to, uh, you know, to occur to me. And the world building got bigger and more interesting, and 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 so the, the this is a, <clears throat> a long answer to the to, <laughs> to back up to say yes, it was in dialogue with that, but it's more in dialogue with the controversy that was going on. Right. Because I didn't really care one way or another about the Godwin story. I, I thought it was kind of dumb. Sorry. It's a terrible story. <laughs> oh, it's, in it's a sense, it's it, yeah. it's incredibly yeah. difficult. It's a dense and 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 you know badly written story. Yeah, but right. its idea is great. It's got right. a great idea because it—I call it like a cleaving line between you know hard science fiction in the sense that here uh, there are actually consequences. Not all problems are institutional problems. Some are you know real problems, universal right. problems. That, you right. know your telomeres are going to wear out. And you're going to die. No right. amount of wish fulfillment will make that stop. You're going right. to die. Mm-hmm. And. I think that story does that amazingly well. And, and because there's all these people fighting against it, that shows, you know, people are resisting the idea that there are uh, real facts instead of just institutional facts or brute facts, I guess, as they're called. Well, I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment to imagine that that uh, that she was the pilot and he was the sure. 12 year old boy. You know, does that story, does it change that story? Uh, the argument of some critics is, would be yes, it does. It it does indeed. Uh, she would never do that. <laughs> she would never make him. She would find some way to do it. Uh, you know, I don't know. Right? I mean, this is this is the man wrote a, a story, and apparently, you know, Campbell helped do some rewrite. Um, yeah, the, with the ending, right? Yeah, but you know, it's it, he wanted some less harsh thing, and Campbell said no. It ha- it it's got to be the laws of physics say. Yeah. And so. Yeah. Anyway. I, yeah, I think Campbell was uh, was a terrible editor in some way, in most ways, perhaps. But he had some really good ideas here and there. Oh yeah. Oh no, I, I wouldn't say he's a terrible editor. I mean, I think he helped make uh, he, he helped drag uh, science fiction from the sort of you know gray lensman yeah. shooting around skylark of space kind of you know silliness to okay let's really take this seriously if this happened how would the future be different and so give him credit for that he 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 asked those hard questions of his writers and made them answer them um yeah later on he he got sort of stuck in a rut uh, maybe but you know um he was obsessed with the uh, with really stupid ideas like you know telepathy all stories must have telepathy and right. it's like right. no that's that's not a good you know i i i'd much prefer galaxy and hl gold and i guess right. you were you were when you were oh, we're not supposed to mention that story are we <laughs> no that story that doesn't exist that no, story that, that doesn't that, exist that appeared in galaxy but has April no name 1975 yeah we won't mention <laughs> that one um was that frederick pole who's editing that no, you'll never guess who. The first story I ever sold, I sold to Jim Bain. He was oh. editing. He was editing Galaxy at the time, and Galaxy was staggering. Yeah, it was near uh, its end. It was near its end. Uh, matter of fact, 
you know, he, he, he printed the story, God bless him, and uh, uh, never paid me, well, didn't pay me for a year. And so finally I wrote him this sort of pleading letter that I'm a new writer and you published my first story. I've never been paid. And so he, I'm not sure where the money came from. He, he sent me a check eventually. It wasn't, you know, it was like three cents a word. So it wasn't a whole lot of money, but you know, I have a lot of respect for him. He bought my first story and, and, you know, in a difficult situation, he did his best and, uh, and the magazine finally died. And so, um, but, but that story doesn't exist. And so. (laughs) (laughs) What story? (laughs) (laughs) But we, we just speaking of something. (laughs) Is it, is it really as bad as you claim? Because I think it is, Uh, you know, well, okay. So, um, is it military uh, science fiction? No, it's religious science fiction. Oh, oh. Mm, yeah. And matter of fact, it's 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 probably the precursor to the pyramid of Amira. Oh, really? oh my god, that's a scary thought. I just thought I just realized it probably is. It deals with some of the same issues. Um, uh, you know, I have published I don't know a hundred stories now at this point, and and I have from time to time, uh, um, you know, sent. Uh, it, published a, a collection of my short stories. My first 10 stories will never be collected because they're not very good. Some of them, I mean, my second published story was, was uh, which is now theoretically my first published story, was collected by Terry Carr in his year's best. And that really made my career, it was sort of the validation that made me go on in face of, you know, a, a storm of rejection slips. But but even with that one, I, I wouldn't say that anyone who likes my work should read those early stories. Maybe someday graduate students might want to look at this <laughs> stuff. But, but, you know, the, the, it's not till about my 10th or 11th story that the stories hold up uh, under scrutiny. They've still got problems, but nonetheless, they're Jim Kelly story, James Patrick Kelly stories as opposed to that, you know, that apprentice putzer who, who thought he could write and got some stuff published but wasn't very good. You know, one of the things I've noticed is you do a lot of collaboration on short stories. Um, That seems very unusual in terms of most short stories aren't co-written unless you're C.L. Moore and uh, and Henry Kuttner. Um, How how, does that come about from going to Clarion and teaching and then seeing your fellow teachers there? What's going on? It did. It did. Um, um, So uh, most of my collaboration has been with John Kessel. And uh, um, when we were both newbies, uh, he tells a story. It's not a. It's not a secret that he was stuck one time. Uh, he had published I don't know five or six stories, and I had published eight or nine stories, or about the same anyway. Um, and he was stuck one time and didn't know what to write next. And so uh, he he wrote me, and I said, "Well, I have this Clarion story which I had written, uh, which I never rewrote." So I sent it off to him and said, "If you want to try this one, you know, collaborate. You know, maybe to get you off the dime." And and he read it and liked it and finished it and it was the cover of FNSF. And so um, he and I have collaborated a bunch of times. And then at one point we, we, we met this smart young fellow by the name, what was his name again? Uh, Lethem, Jonathan, Jonathan Lethem. Yeah. <laughs> and so we thought Jonathan was, was great. And so we invited him. We had, John had an, uh, an old story of his that he had never written finished and he sent it to me and I looked at it and did a little bit of work on it and then we sent it to Jonathan and Jonathan finished it and so Jonathan and I and John collaborated on a couple stories I also have collaborated with uh, Bob Fraser noted poet uh, we had some a really cool Christmas story and and I've done some round robin uh novels which or or stories which I 
I'm not quite they're as always good. terrible. Uh, I I've never yeah, read a good one. Sometimes they're good, but I'm not. They're not. They don't appear. I'm not sure they are in my bibliography. So I have there's to one uh, on ISFDB which has. Uh, oh yeah, the Omega Egg. And that, oh God, it, Brian <laughs> Herbert, Robert Sheckley, David Gerald, Jody Lynn Nye, Mike Resnick, Pat Cadigan, Stephen yeah. Lee. Yeah, um, that was a that was a Resnick thing. And Resnick is a you know Resnick is the great collaborator. And yeah, he, yeah. And I collaborated on that one, and I also collaborated with Mike on another story because I really liked Mike, and I was interested in sort of, especially when he and I collaborated and 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 looking at his process. And that's one of the things that is helpful if you collaborate is um, you get to see the other guy's process. You can see what he likes and what he doesn't like, what he likes of yours and what he doesn't like. Because mm-hmm. if you're in a workshop, he might say, "Oh, well, I think you should change this guy into a robot." Well, if you're collaborating, <laughs> he changes the guy into a robot, and then you have to unchange him, and so that that's kind of a cool thing. Um, but you know, uh, it's it's been often said, and I agree that collaborations are probably twice as much work as doing it on your own. And so, uh, other than the fact of friendship and 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 that that uh, that ability to look at the other person's pro- process, I haven't collaborated quite as much as as I did recently as I had at the start of my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other the other thing that I I think I'm gonna have to pick up if I can find a copy is um is the new collection called Kafka esque. Yeah, that that uh, is getting me thinking. You know, maybe maybe this uh, slipstream stuff is really accessible because <laughs> I I like Kafka, right? Yeah. And, um. So th- are these all new stories um written in the style of Kafka, or how how did you cl- make the collection? No. Uh. So. I've been doing. Uh, John and I uh, done a series of of, uh, of anthologies for Techyard Press out in San Francisco. The first one was the Slipstream anthology, feeling very strange. And then they approached us and said, "Well, that was great. What else can you do?" And so uh, I sort of pitched the idea of a post cyberpunk anthology. So that one was rewired, and then they approached us with an idea. Uh, basically, the the title was the idea. It was called the Secret History of Science Fiction, and sort of. What would be what if if you imagined that uh, you know science fiction and literature mainstream literature were not separate genres? Could you put together an anthology of mainstream writers and science fiction writers, all of a high quality? So the science fiction writers would be literary quality, and the mainstream writers would be using science fiction tropes. And so mm-hmm. we did that one. And so finally, they said, "Well, we had this idea about Kafka," and so. Kafka-esque, which is the one that just came out uh, last month, is uh, stories that are in the spirit of Kafka. And so several of the stories, Kafka appears as a character. Um, In other stories, uh, they're sort of a riff on Kafka stories, like uh, like The Metamorphosis. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a couple that are riffed on that. And, And some are sort of like sort of slantwise to it they 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 show what we think is a kafka-esque influence they they're, they're clearly writers have who have read kafka but their kafka doesn't appear and they're not actually a direct quote uh, or or an homage to a specific story so a couple of those that are, are, are you know, science fiction readers may know is uh, jg ballard wrote a story called the drowned giant um where basically it's like a a, a giant like a whale washes up on shore and the story is about what happens as he decomposes and and what people make of I've him. I've heard of that story. I haven't read that. That's sounds- it's a re- it's a very cool story, and we think it was Kafka esque. And and then uh, and then uh, Borges wrote uh, uh, a story called uh, 
Lottery of Babylon, which is in our anthology. And that's sort of a, you know, if you like Pyramid of Meyer, you should read that, except it doesn't have any characters. It's mostly sort of the history of, of, of a lottery, which sort of, uh, it's hard to describe, but the lottery involves uh, people's life choices. And so it sort of calls into question whether f- there is free will. Mm. Um, very good story. Anyway, I so, read the uh, Library of Babylon. I, I don't know if that's uh, set in the same. Uh, is that what I? What did I say? I no, no, you said the lottery. No, there's another one called the Library, Library of Babylon. Babylon. No, that's no, no, a that's completely not it, no. different story. But it's a different very, story. Very no, strange. I like on the name of the of the of the story, the Borges story. It's the uh, lottery, anyway. the lottery in Babylon. That's you got it right. I don't think that's it either. But no, I'm looking at it. It says La oh, okay. Lottery on Babylon, Babylonia, 1991. Cool. Okay. Anyway, so that's the that's the Kafka book, um, and so uh, w- you know we we know that there's a lot of big fans of Kafka, and so Kafka's output was actually vanishingly small, um, certainly in his lifetime. And so the novels that we know were all published posthumous, posthumously by his his pal Max Broad, who sort of got in there and and fixed them up and made them publishable and, or, you know, made, made the manuscripts complete anyway. And so, uh, um, so we thought about it. People sort of felt like there were, there's more, there's more that can be said about Kafka. And so we got some of the very best writers we could find who had something to say, Philip Roth and, and, and certainly Carol Emschwiller, for instance, the book is dedicated to Carol Emschwiller, by the way. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. And so we, that was the project. So is Joe Hill in that? Joe Hill is not, but he he wrote a a, a very cool metamorphosis story. Right, I read part of it. Just, and just a little bit too violent for <laughs> okay. our, our sensibilities, and you know maybe we're just not the right readers for that. Um, it, it was definitely in in the in the in the mix up until the very end. Okay, that's sort of like a bonus story you can read separately. <laughs> yeah, you should. It's, a, it's in his short story collection, The Heart Shaped Box. It's called right. You Will Hear the Locust Sing. You will. And so it's a metamorphosis story, but, you know, where Kafka turned away from the, sort of the, the gore of, or, you know, the, the, the blood and guts of implicit in his story, you know, <laughs> Joe Hill gets a magnifying glass and, and looks <laughs> at it very You know, I actually didn't finish it, so I, I don't know what you're talking about yet. <laughs> <laughs> Is it that doesn't you didn't end finish well. It? It, was, it was getting tra- traumatic. Is that why you didn't finish it? I don't know. I, I just ran out of time one day and never got yeah, around yeah. to it. Yeah. I'll, fin- I'll finish it now. I'll What's finish. What, so the secret history of science fiction? I'm looking at the uh, the the authors. They other than Margaret Atwood, they're all science fiction authors. <laughs> uh, although I, well, I, I know T.C. Boyle. She says she's not, but. Uh, T.C. Bo- T.C. Boyle's uh, never read T.C. Boyle. So okay, I, so uh, Jonathan Lethem. Um, uh, yeah, he's he's kind of almost there, right? Uh, I mean, Michael Chabon. Let me go get my copy. Sure. Hang on, I'll be right back. We've got we've got. Uh, oh, yeah, I was looking at nine billion names of God, but actually, it's by Carter Scholes, which is. Uh, have you read that story, Tam? The Nine Billion Names of God, but not oh. by Arthur C. Clarke. Okay, no, no, wait a minute. Don DeLillo, uh, Stephen Milhauser, George Saunders. These guys, I mean, George Saunders 
just won a genius award. He publishes in the New Yorker. Don DeLillo. I mean, yeah, some okay. of these guys are. I have uh, never heard of. I think Michael, Michael Shaben, you know, yeah, Michael he won Shaben. a Nebula yeah. award, but mostly he's not known for his, his genre work. And well, you know, he did. He He's done sort of, I guess they're they're more mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that was the idea is that, you know, we think our best and, and we say our best here just off the top of our head is Maureen McHugh and yeah. and uh, and uh, uh, Tom Dish and Connie Willis and Gene Wolfe and Kate Wilhelm and Lucia Shepard. Uh, we think they're, you know, writing as well as these guys who publish in The New Yorker or, you know, who have literary cred. And so that was the idea, though, is that, the, you know, if you if you if you put all these people on the same table of contents, it is kind of a revelation. You're saying, oh, which of these does not belong? Okay. Yeah. Our argument is that none of them do not belong. They all are of equality and they're all uh, writing things that are, you know, identifiably science fiction. Although you, you've got one uh, in there, 10 to 16 to one. The other one that I've read in, that's in this collection is the nine billion names of God, but I, Gardner Schultz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> This is uh, this is a uh, this isn't just a story that's in dialogue with uh, with the original story of the same name. It is the story the con- of the same name in a in a sense. Conce- well, the conceit of the story is that Carter Scholes, the writer Carter Scholes, sends the nine billion names of God off to a a, 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 a editor and claims it's his, and the editor writes back, "You idiot! You know, don't you know it's by." Arthur C. Clarke, and he writes back and says, I know it's by Arthur C. Clarke, it's also by me. And, and so the, the, the story is a series of, of, of letters, yeah. increasingly irate from the editor and increasingly reasonable from Carter, um, you know, which, of course, this, this, this is a fiction. So the, these letters were never actually written and sent. But nonetheless, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a great deconstruction of what it means to write a story. I've got, I've got one on my desktop that I found... Uh recently um called a recursion of meta stories and i think it's by um clark I, i'm going to see if i can find it at some point but um mm-hmm. uh, it, there, there's uh <laughs> there's this um <laughs> there there are some kind of stories that just they 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 work only if you've read a lot of science fiction you can't just pick it pick it up you know right. it's in dialogue with something and it's just a joke right the whole the whole point of that one little thing is is it's a joke. I'm not sure if this is just a joke, but um, it certainly is humorous. Right. Well, we it, you you passed briefly over over the 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 sin that John Kessel and I the sins that John Kessel and I committed when we wrote the Secret History of Science Fiction. Now, of course, you have we've talked about the pyramid of Myra being a slipstream story. Mm-hmm. I have written a bunch of cyberpunk post cyberpunk stories. And uh, and so finally, when it came to this book, Kessel and I decided that we'd put stories of our own. And now this is just not done for editors to say, you know, OK, I'm going to publish my own story. But we did it and and we're living with it. But we got huge, huge flack from people saying, oh, these guys have just published this book to put their own stories in it. And they have no sense. Their stories don't belong with, you know, Connie Willis and Gene Wolfe and T.C. Boyle and Michael Shaben. So, um, um, mea culpa to anyone who who read this book and feels that way. But write your own anthology if you have. Right, <laughs> I've yeah. se- I've seen it done fairly fairly often. Uh, maybe not in recent books, but yeah, right. You think that Jim Kelly guy is great? 
I have to say, he's one of my favorite authors. Yeah. <laughs> now, what is what is post cyberpunk? Because so, I understand cyberpunk. Are we in post cyberpunk age? Yes, we are in post cyberpunk age. So, so you know, you know, the history of cyberpunk was that uh, Bruce Sterling and Bill Gibson and some of their pals started writing these stories, and and they were cool stories, and and everyone said they were cool stories. So other people started writing them. Um, and then in, in 1985 or six, I can't remember when Bruce put out this anthology called mirror shades, which were collected stories of the cyberpunks. And then he, he also was at the time anonymous, pseudonymously, uh, publishing a, a newsletter, sort of a party organ of cyberpunk. And he just, uh, he published the last issue of this, uh, this broadsheet called cheap truth and said, cyberpunk was over. Uh, cyberpunk had won the revolution and and so and so lots of people then took that to mean that 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 was the end of the classic cyberpunk era and everything that happens after that is post cyberpunk well you know our anthology makes the argument that it wasn't really the case because lots of people were so jazzed by mirror shades and and neuromancer and Islands in the net and, and stories of, of of the early cyberpunks that they wrote some great stories that were also clearly cyberpunk. But we sort of talk about uh, about the beginning of post cyberpunk with uh, Neil Stevenson. Yeah, and so I, I hear he's cyberpunky. He's kind of cyberpunky, but he also is sort of you know, and if if cyberpunk is about you know computer hackers who take mind expanding drugs and do nefarious things in the underworld of some dystopian future, uh, that's not what Neil Stevenson writes about. He also is very computer literate, but uh, and 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 he's fast forwarded into the future but it isn't the future that the cyberpunks and so it, it, basically our argument is that the part of what's post cyberpunk is is that there are still stories that are very intimately engaged with the way technology changes the way we are so you know they're still having mind implants and they're still having you know biological tweaking your 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 dna and things like that but it isn't in a dystopian world. It is in the world that, you know, that we look around us, uh, we see when we look around us. I mean, so, so to, 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 to our thinking, the two most recent post-cyberpunks are Cory Doctorow and, and Charlie Strauss. Um, mm -hmm. If you think about what they're writing about, that's sort of what cyberpunk became after people thought about all the tropes and sort of discarded the silly ones and and held on to the interesting ideas and mm -hmm. so um that's that was our argument you know <laughs> and 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 we caught you know we caught uh criticism <laughs> can i say crap on this <laughs> <laughs> sure a lot of crap you could make uh, uh, you could say shit if you want Oh my God! <laughs> Wait a minute! Oh my earphones are on fire. Um, uh, <laughs> the floodgates are uh, open. <laughs> the uh, uh, because we didn't include all the original cyberpunks in the post cyberpunk, but you know some of them weren't really writing post cyberpunk as we saw it. They were they moved on. Some some of them decided to write horror. Some of them decided to write different stuff. And so, um, but uh, but I, you know I could have I if someone else had edited that book and not put me in it, I would have been pissed because I really feel like a lot of my stuff has been post cyberpunk if it has any meaning whatsoever. And so uh, 
love happily there is a new cyberpunk book i can't reveal who it is but there's a there's an editor who's contacted me and she's doing a cyberpunk book and she is actually taking stories of mine so i'm i'm happy it's a post post cyberpunk anthology <laughs> actually i think it's more she's more trying to combine cyberpunk and post cyberpunk sort of a look see we didn't have any of the original cyberpunk stories we didn't have any stories that in in the post cyberpunk anthology that that happened that were written before uh, 1980, I want to say seven or eight, but the prime cyberpunk era was 82 to 80 to, to 80, 87 or 88. So mm-hmm. I, I, I was thinking, you know, another way to go is to do pre cyberpunk because uh, I think that you can probably find, if you dig hard enough, you can probably find things that sort of, that look like cyberpunk, but you know, came out before the eighties. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, dude, you know, Blade Runner was before, well, Bill Gibson was still trying to sell stories. I mean, if if Blade Runner isn't a cyberpunk movie, then there is no cyberpunk movie. It it certainly looks like cyberpunk. I I don't know if this, I I think the story's, uh, except for the the attitude, I think the story's pretty Philip K. Dick, uh, which I don't think he's really cyberpunky, but... But the, the visuals are certainly that way. And that's uh, what, I, what I've read of steampunk. It seems to me that um, where cyberpunk seems to have an attitude, steampunk seems to have a vision. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is <laughs> people with, you know, uh, goggles and, and airships uh, and <laughs> trains yeah. and stuff. But what's the attitude? Yeah. Victorian? <laughs> Maybe. Where's I don't the know. Punk? Well, yeah, yeah the, the, may, uh, I'm not sure. I, I haven't read a, a a steampunk story that said this is steampunk other than its visuals. Like, what is <laughs> the ethos of a steampunk story? Yeah, I think part of it is the alternate history, and part of it is the uh, use of technology for that goes in a different direction. So, if you if you if you allow the First of all, let me just say that you're going to get mail from the steampunk <laughs> crowd too. So, no, no. Heinlein crowd, steampunk crowd. I don't know you guys actually, <laughs> um, um, but I, but I think that, that that there's part of it is the okay. So, how could technology have evolved differently? And and that's a useful um, it's a useful pattern of thought. Okay, we here's the here's the technology we have today. Are we happy with it? Well, what if we had taken a different turn someplace back then? What would it look like, and and what kinds of attitudes would would obtain? And so, yeah, I mean, I I think that you know the very best steampunk is thinking hard about our world, but looking at it through the lens of this this uh, this different uh, past. And so, you know, whether it all is you know about goggles and zeppelins, I think that that's the trappings. In the same way that cyberpunk was all about, you know. Uh, computer hacking and and mirror shades but but there are ideas to cyberpunk and there were definitely ideas to steampunk that are worth exploring and and very smart people are in fact out there walking through these labyrinths of cool ideas is there a uh, so um i was thinking you know pavane i haven't read this book but it just came out as an audiobook on audible um neil gaiman brought it out it, it's an old novel uh Set in England in the 1960s, where the Catholic Church never collapsed, and uh, they've restrained technology to the point where they're 
even in the 1960s, they're still using steam powered everything. Yeah. So that sounds to me like a, you know, sort of a proto uh, steampunk sort of setting. Um, Bingo. But, right. You're right. But what, what, what is the, uh, in that story, I think the ethos is, you know, uh, you know, repression or something. But I've never read, like, what I've read of, I've read a couple of novels and a couple of short stories. It seemed either the case that it's all about the gears <laughs> or it's a, it's a setting. But I haven't found like a, a story, like, when I read a, a, you know, William Gibson short story, right. uh, I say, these are people living in a gritty land trying to get whatever they can. Uh, you know, they, they're trying to do the best they can in the, with the, with the, the shit that they got and they don't care who it hurts to get, get it. That's the ethos, right? What's mm-hmm. the ethos for steampunk? The, is well, there a story I, I can reach? Maybe you don't know. Is I do. Well, okay. So, so I, I am no expert on it, but, uh, I, I try to stay current. I would say, you know, there's a great book, uh, a novel called Bone Shaker by Jer- Sherry Priest. Do you know this? I've heard of it. And I haven't read it. Okay, so read that, and uh, it's the first in a series. You may not want to follow the whole series through, but it will, you know, this is a, a skillfully wrought um, um, steampunk book. But I mean, if you really want to know about steampunk, go to Sherry's website, and she has a spirited defense of what she thinks it's about, and it makes a lot of sense. So um, okay. I'm, I'm not going to paraphrase her because she says it more eloquently and believes it more passionately than I. <laughs> Well, you you haven't read it, uh, written anything steampunk, I don't think, have you? I I have not, and no. you know, I, I suppose, uh, I suppose I could put it on my agenda, but I've got so many other things that I've been sort of working on that I'm I haven't got to it. Um, I should I should also tell you that the other story that I, I was thinking of uh, talking about today what was Bernardo's house, which is. <laughs> Um, not, not, it's not really that similar to Pyramid of America, but I, I thought it was pretty, um, it's, it's sort of iconically Jim Kelly. I think. It is. Yeah, I think so. Um, what can I say about that? Uh, so dialogue, um, it's a dialogue with Asimov's robots. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's it, when it ran in Asimov's, it had a, a warning. It has, has uh, it's about as explicit sexually as I've ever written. Um, because the idea of this story is that uh, a guy in a possibly falling apart, close to a post apocalyptic world builds himself a sort of a safe house, and the house itself is intelligent. Um, and uh, he the house serves all his needs, so the house. Um, you know, senses through its couches. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 you know, every part of the house is alive, and it also manipulates a, for all intents and purposes, a sex doll apparatus that that is also an embodiment of it, and it it exists to serve to serve this this guy, uh, and he disappears, and since it's a it's a it's hidden away, no one knows about it. The house slowly goes insane. Until a young girl uh, shows up and stumbles into it, and it uh, it welcomes her, and and the dialogue between the girl and the house uh, slowly I don't know if you want to say humanizes it, but the house learns how to be more of a complete person mm-hmm. uh, through its interaction with the girl. Um, but uh, and and it, and it, it, it is one of my favorite stories. Um, I, 
and I really don't know what else to say about it. I think that it's it's uh, it, it's a post cyberpunk. Yeah, yeah, it, it, sure. it has a main character sort of a a punk herself, right? She is she is herself a punk, and the and the 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 interesting conceit of the ho- of the story is that the house is sort of like prim and proper, even though it's a sex doll. <laughs> I mean, among other things, it, yeah. it's totally naive. And this girl who is a punk has seen some very nasty things out in this landscape that's where the world is falling apart and she has some very shocking things to say to the to the house <laughs> and the house has has a, in some ways it's a coming of age story of a house mm-hmm. <laughs> she she the girl flies already of an age who's seen way too much for her age and the house has seen nothing and and needs to learn about the world and so fly teaches her uh, I was does she thinking- have a dragon tattoo <laughs> no, she does not. But you know, I wouldn't put it past her. She's the kind of 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 person that would, you know, s- clearly fit into the dragon tattoo world yeah. very well. Yeah, she's a bit similar character. Yeah. Um. Uh, I was also thinking. There's. I think it's a Ray Bradbury story about a house. Um. That kind of goes crazy. Uh, there will come soft rains. That's it. Yeah, that dialogue with that for sure. Yeah. Absolutely for sure. Yeah. I I saw this. Uh, I was in New York for some reason. Might have been oh to do a reading at the at KGB, uh, and my friend Mary Robinette Kowal said that I was in for a couple of days, and she invited me to go see this show, uh, which was kind of like a puppet show. It was during the uh, yeah, she's a puppeteer. She's a puppeteer. She was in the Fringe Festival, and they did a uh, uh, one of the one of the it was it was three or four short plays. One of them was an adaptation of "There Will Come Soft Rains," and oh. it was just amazing. Done with actors pretending to be the house, and they did this <laughs> very cool story, uh, this Bradbury story, and it and it just spoke deeply to me uh, about you know. That story has always been very poignant, and and you know Bernardo's house starts out very poignantly too. It, it's sort of like what would have happened in Ray Bradbury's story if somebody had shown up before the house, you know, fell apart. Yeah, and Jim Kelly writing. Yeah, Ray right. Bradbury. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I mean, the Ray Bradbury story is the inspiration, but basically, Bernardo's house goes left from there mm-hmm. about you know about a fifth of the way in and goes someplace entirely different. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.